um, if you haven't been with us, or if you have, we've been in the book of Acts. So please turn your Bibles back to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. I know many of you have been loving this series. I appreciate your notes and your comments and all that you've been telling me. Uh, it, It has just been an absolute thrill to study the book of Acts. I mean, no... No cheap entertainment from the culture could match the excitement that happens in the book of Acts. I mean, just reading it or listening to it, it just grabs you and grips you to look at inspired church history. I think this morning is going to be uniquely encouraging to you. If a couple weeks ago we were all a bit taken back by the story of Ananias and Sapphira and how God killed two people because they were a threat to the unity of his church, and and there was a great charge there and concern about hypocrisy. This narrative by Luke uh, that he's showing us takes a little bit different of a perspective because the goal of this portion of Acts is this very simple. If you're just wondering, what am I going to get out of this morning? What is the aim of Luke, who is the, the person giving us this narrative in Acts? It is this. The aim here is pretty simple. One single truth. It's going to encourage your soul. Nothing can stop the progress of the gospel. Nothing. Nothing can stop the progress of the gospel and Christ's promise to build His church. You guys remember Matthew 16, 18. Remember what Jesus said? What's He say there? You remember? I will what? Build my church and the gates of Hades will not Overpower. Translation, I will build my church and even if hell rallied all of its troops to try and stop me, nothing will stop the building of the church. Christ made a promise and it will come into fruition. And yet, Luke includes this narrative in Acts 5, 17-42 because he knows something, doesn't he? That we sometimes get tempted to discouragement about what it looks like as God's carrying out that promise, don't we? You guys ever get tempted to discouragement when you see evil? When you see wickedness? I mean, let me even ask you, uh, why do we get discouraged when it seems like evil is silencing the truth of the gospel? Why does that discourage us? What is our problem? You guys can answer that. What's our problem when it seems like evil is silencing the gospel and we get discouraged? Why? What's our problem in light of a promise like that that we've just been given, that we know that it can't stop, and yet we do get discouraged, and so with the early church. What is that about us? Why, why do we need narratives like this? Unbelief? Amen. Unbelief in what? The Lord's promises, the Lord's strength to accomplish what He's promised. We're prideful to think we can interpret what we see, and if our interpretation doesn't agree with what God says, that makes Him a liar in our <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's interesting. It's spot on, Robert. All of a sudden, we have this big God theology. Have this amazing God who sits on the throne of heaven and uses the earth as his footstool, Isaiah 66 two. And then the moment some difficulty or hostility comes against the gospel, all of a sudden we start interpreting things by what we see and not what we know to be true. This is the human heart's problem. We all struggle with this. I wrote down what I, you know, I, I kind of thought it was. We let the hostility to the gospel, the hardness in people's hearts, the opposition of blind people to the truth, 
make us imagine that mere mortals can stop immortal God. That mere mortals can stop immortal God. And so the single purpose of this narrative is just to refresh and encourage your soul. If you leave here with one thing today and maybe next time, depending on how much I get through, I want you to leave with this encouragement. No matter if, you know, I hear of evil in the world and it seems like it's, it's silencing the gospel or I run into that friend or that family member that I love and they not only push back against my life, but they deliberately try and bring evil against me to stop me from being able to live my Christian life. Or when the so-called church panics because they fear that a liberal has been put in office and our president's going to be a liberal and oh no, if that happens, what could happen to the gospel? (laughs) Can you imagine... The irony of that, thinking about some puny mortal sitting in some oval office, acting like they're in control, and the God of the universe is the very one that sustains their breath. (laughs) God made a promise to His church that nothing can stop the progress of the gospel and the building of His church. And yet the early church, just like us, when they saw evil and they saw wickedness, they would have been tempted to doubt. And so Acts comes in, particularly this narrative... Acts 5, 17 to 42, and says, when you get tempted to doubt, when your friends are starting to get discouraged, when you're wondering, could this evil prevail, just go read this narrative, and you're going to see four failed attempts to stop the progress of the gospel. And if you're taking notes, that's our outline. Four failed attempts to stop the progress of the gospel. Isn't it encouraging, beloved? Just think about this. Just think with me for a moment about this. When we live for Christ and we champion His truth and we live for the gospel, we are serving under an undefeated general. He's never lost and He's never ultimately going to lose despite perceived setbacks. So we're going to see four failed attempts to stop the progress of the gospel. Now in this narrative, nobody dies. They almost die. In fact, they get beaten within an inch of their life and almost give their life, all 12 apostles, for the sake of the gospel. They almost die. When we get to Acts 7, Stephen will die. And when we get to Acts 12, James will die. And so just because apostles or followers of Christ die, as we'll see in those narratives, God takes that and spreads His gospel even farther by the courage of the martyrs. This one, nobody dies. This one is Luke's way of showing the irony and the foolishness when mere mortals try and stop immortal God. In fact, we're even going to see an unbeliever, an unexpected Pharisee, rebuke his fellow men and warn them, you better not be found fighting against God. You better not be found fighting against God. And so here we are in this narrative, and it's so encouraging. Then there's another side of this. If we looked at it from another angle, there's maybe a secondary purpose when you hear this narrative. Not only be refreshed and thrilled to hear what God does, but I want you to also think about the characters that are used by God to advance and march on His gospel. You know what you're not going to see in this narrative? Who God is using for the progress of the gospel and the building of His church? The carnal and worldly. You don't find them here. You don't find those who still love the approval of man being used here. You're actually going to see that getting rebuked. And you don't see those who have put their premium on extracting what they can from this earth. You find those, as John MacArthur said, who have put their anchor in heaven. That's who's used here. 
That's where they've anchored their soul. That's who God uses to advance and march on His gospel. So, there's four failed attempts. And if you look at Acts 5, verse 17, last time we looked at 432 to 1 to uh, chapter 5, verse 16 with Ananias and Sapphira. But look at Acts 5, 17. It says this, But the high priests rose up along with all the associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. Now we need to stop there. Because we have just dropped into the middle of a narrative. And to jump into that without getting the context, it might confuse you from where we've been. Now, if you remember, what has been going on so far in Acts, right? Acts 2, what happened? Anybody remember? The church, first church is planted by God. It's the church's birthday. Then Acts 2, 30... Well, let's see. Let's look back at Acts 2 just really quickly. Just to give ourselves a running start here. Acts 2, verses 37 to 47, body life explodes and the church is born and God saves thousands of people under the preaching of Peter. Then Acts 3, you see another scene where a lame beggar is healed and we see our first external threat to the gospel. If you remember, looking at it, look at Acts 4, 1 to 3. After this beggar is healed, Peter preaches a sermon. Thousands more souls are saved, baptized, and added to the church. Then chapter 4, you have your first external threat to this amazing movement called the church. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching people and proclaiming Jesus. Notice that. You've got, every time God's doing a work, Satan responds. And here, he's trying to silence the power of the gospel and the preaching of the word. And notice verse 3. They laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day. So you've got two of the apostles preaching, Peter there and John, and they're put in jail. And then notice, go down, there's this incredible sermon by Peter, and then there's a warning. Look at verse 17 of chapter 4. After Peter's done preaching, they don't soften these religious leaders, these Sadducees, these Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, same people that were behind the execution of Jesus. Look at verse 17. They warn them that it will, so that it will not spread any further among the, among the people. Let us warn them, Acts 4.17, not to speak any longer to men in His name. And so they summoned these, these apostles together and they basically said, don't speak or teach about Jesus. End there. So, you've got this account. The church is born. The gospel spreading. Thousands of people are being saved in Jerusalem. You've got about 200,000 people in Jerusalem. Right here, we're heading towards 10,000 of them have now been converted through the gospel of Jesus Christ and added to the church. So the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they said, Obey, this is not good. This is a threat to our reputation. You need to stop speaking. So they warned them and said, You better not speak about Christ anymore. Fast forward now. Verse 32, chapter 4. The gospel's still exploding. The word is going forth. And the congregation of those who believe were one heart and soul, and none of them claimed anything belonging to him. Each one had his, uh, his property and sold it to others. We've talked all about that. And not sold it to give resources to others. And they had everything in common. So the church is in Jubilee. And then what happened two weeks ago? Satan introduces an internal threat. So we had our external threat and our internal threat. Ananias and Sapphira. 
What's God do with the first internal threat? He kills Ananias and Sapphira for threatening the unity of the church. What happens as a result of that? Do you remember? Thousands more people start getting saved because unbelievers say, if God deals that severely with sin and I'm not right with Him, then I need to repent and become right with Him or I am in serious trouble. You remember that? Look at verse 11 of chapter 5. And great fear came over the whole church and all who heard these things. Then look at this verse 15. To such an extent, there were so many people fearing God and running to Him to be right with Him, that they, look at 5.15, they even carried the sick into the streets and laid them in cots and palace so that when Peter came by, his shadow might fall upon them for them to be healed. These people are being saved and healed. God's being merciful to them. Verse 16, also the people came from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem. The gospel now breaks the borders of Jerusalem and starts spreading out on the mountainsides and in the hills and other regions. And everyone starts coming to hear of Christ and people are being saved. Now with that as your running start, now look at verse 17 again. But, second external threat. The priests, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, they were not about to have it. They wanted the mouths of these apostles stopped. And that gets into the first point of our outline with that running start. Here it is. Ready for it? You are going to love this. Of the four failed attempts to stop the progress of the gospel, here's the first one. Ready? Imprisoning God's preachers failed to stop their preaching. Imprisoning God's preachers failed to stop their preaching. And I'm just telling you, beloved, let this soak over your soul to see how... Incredible it is that God is working even when men are attempting to stop His work. So, notice verse 17 again. But, in light of all that's going on, the gospel's going forth. The high priest, coming in, probably Annas, rose up along with his associates. That is the sect of the Sadducees. And look at what he says their heart issue was. Notice, they were filled with with jealousy. Ooh, let's think about that. They were filled with jealousy. Translation, you know what was wrong with the religious leaders when they viewed the church? It wasn't as that they were so concerned about Christ and so concerned about the claims. Here it is. They loved their reputation so much that Christ was becoming a threat to their influence. You've got to remember something. Okay, so the religious leaders here, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all the Sanhedrin, they didn't just act independent as if they could do whatever they wanted. Rome was the one that gave them their authority. You've got to understand, at this time, Rome and, and all the magistrate there had the ability to allow the Jews to exercise judgment and kind of run the court system, what is fair and what is just. But if the people rose up against the Sanhedrin, Rome could decide, oh, you're actually a threat to my political influence. I'll end you. So even the Jews at this time were dependent upon Roman authority. So what is happening here? The Christians are preaching a message. You know the Jews that say that you need to adhere by all their laws and their sacrifices and their rituals and they've you know, heaped all these extra burdens upon you? Uh, yeah, they were actually the ones that missed the Messiah. They actually killed Christ. They were the ones that were behind the coup that got Him executed. And actually, you need to repent of following their entire system of belief and where they're taking you. 
So imagine how polarizing that would have been. So what were they jealous of? Influence. If people, this is what they're saying. If people start listening to these Christians, they'll no longer come sit at our feet and think we're such incredible teachers. They're no longer going to come and think that we're respectful and, and able to judge what is right and wrong in society. And that's going to get back to the emperor. And if the emperor hears that the mob doesn't want us here, then the emperor will come and remove us. Do you see? This was a threat to their reputation, their influence, their significance. They were jealous that they might lose influence. And if you don't think that's a big sin... That jealousy in them here, that envy, that coveting, that selfish ambition, it's going to drive them to do everything they can to murder 12 innocent men. You know, sometimes we think, don't we, about jealousy, envy, selfish ambition. We think, ah, oh, that's, a, that's a respectable sin. And yet, what's James 3, verses 14, 15, 16 say? If you have envy and jealousy in your heart, you are capable of every kind of evil on the planet. Where does all evil grow out of? Envy and jealousy. Right here, they were jealous. And their envy drove them to try and murder 12 innocent men. Watch this. Their heart issue is jealousy. They love their reputation. Rome has the pressure on them. They can't lose their influence. So what happens? Notice. Verse 18. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in public jail. I love it. So now they're incarcerated. But, verse 19, don't you love the buts in the Bible? So good. <laughs> but, while men tried to incarcerate them with their mere bars and mere prison and, and mere coup to silence them, during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and had taken them outside. And then look at this. The angel starts to exhort them. The angel starts to instruct them. Go, get up, stand, and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Verse 21. And upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now, it's amazing because Luke's saying we've got a little bit of a, a crisis here. We've got men trying to silence the gospel and God saying, eh, no, I'm going to go ahead and send an angel in. <laughs> I'm just going to go ahead and pull those guys out because I want them preaching my message. And look at the content of their message that the angel tells them to preach. This is an interesting way to describe the gospel. Notice, the whole message of life. What is that? He's telling them, go tell the Jews they're dead in their sin. Go tell the Jews they're walking zombies. Go tell the Jews that they're blind and dead in their inner life. But you have an offering of life to them. You offer them Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the what? The life. He offers life. So the angel says, go teach them that they can have life. Why? Because Jesus is alive. And He is risen. And if you repent and put your faith in Him, you will live too. So, they get up and they go. Now, imagine, I was trying to think of how I would explain this, the irony of this next scene. Imagine that we're watching a video screen up here and we're seeing the apostles march off and we're watching them preach and it's amazing and we're thinking, that's incredible. They're preaching the gospel. They're preaching life. And then it goes to a split screen and while that's going on, meanwhile, there's this other scene going on. So now we have a split screen. That's happening. Then over here we have this other event. Notice what else is happening at the same time. This is just fantastic. Now, verse 21... Upon hearing this, they go preach. 
But he entered in there. Now, 21b there, so notice. When the high priests and the associates came, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for these apostles to be brought to them. Stop there. Now look at how formal this scene is. Notice, you've got the high priest there, the ruling person that rules over all of justice and religion and what is right. You've got the council together, all the senate and all the sons of Israel. The whole Sanhedrin has gathered. The good old boy club has gone to come together and said, okay guys, let's get in our little half circle. We already warned them once, remember, just a couple weeks ago. We've told them not to preach about us. We've told them to be quiet. And now, as the governing authority over what is right and what is wrong that Rome has appointed, let's get together and deliberate what we should do with these peasant Christians, whom we have in prison right now, by the way, so they can't tell their silly message that they've been telling all the people in Jerusalem. Meanwhile, over in the other screen, <laughs> they're busy going about preaching their message. They're off preaching and evangelizing. No doubt God is saving people. They're proselytizing. People are coming to Christ. They're right about their business of preaching. At the same time, the authorities and the magistrates are sitting back and saying, hmm, what will we do with them now that we've silenced them? We're in control. We have power. We have authority. We're the ones that have got it together in the sense that we can put our thumb on these Christians so they don't speak, probably telling, telling their friends, you know, we arrested them again. They're actually back in public jail. It's locked up. We have our best officers in front. We have silenced those Christians. Now you look at the scene and you're thinking, well, this is funny. <laughs> this, is, this is quite the scene. They think that they are in control. They think that they have authority. They think that they are the ones that can stop God. And God's like, <laughs> yeah, right. Got it. Notice verse 22. But, another but. You just got to love grammar and conjunctions. I mean, come on. This is so good. But the officers who came did not find them in prison. Meanwhile... Back at the temple, they're preaching. And these guys are going, uh, they're not here. This is, this, this is interesting. And they returned and reported back, verse 23, saying, notice the details here. We found the prison house locked quite securely. And the guards were standing at the door. But when we opened up the door, we found no one inside. Now you think about it. Those guards, they could lose their life for allowing the apostles to get out. This was a locked prison. The guards had no idea that they had gotten out. Meanwhile, they're back preaching. These guys think they're locked up. And now they get this report that those men that were supposed to be in prison, they're missing. Now think about this. On one screen, they still don't know. Pharisees, Sadducees, Sanhedrin, religious leaders, they still are confused. All the while, meanwhile... They're preaching the gospel at the temple, seeing people come to Christ, while these guys are puzzled. You see what Luke's doing here? He's showing these men, no matter how they try, cannot stop the gospel. God will do whatever it takes, whatever He wants to do, to get the gospel and make it go forth. God is busy building His church. Now, notice 24. Now, when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, look at this, they were greatly perplexed about them and thought, what would come of this? Translation, what does this mean for us? 
What do they care about? They're such narcissists. All they care about is how does this affect me? Not about the message. Not about what's going on. All they're wondering is how will this end up showing up for our reputation? Now remember, they still don't know what's going on. They still don't realize that the 12 apostles are back evangelizing at the temple. And notice, they were perplexed. Here's the idea. They were in their little half circle, ready to deliberate, and now they're looking at each other going, guys, what is going on? Where are the apostles? Where are they at? I thought you put them in prison. I thought you were watching them. And now you've got the head temple guard that's coming here saying, what is going on? What are we doing? Where is everybody at? Meanwhile, they're back preaching, seeing souls come to Christ. And then the irony of 25. A no-named figure shows up to rebuke them. Notice 25. I love this. You've got all these characters that are known, and then Luke says, someone showed. (laughs) Someone came and reported to them. Look at this. Look at this rebuke. The men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching. (laughs) Uh, Excuse me? I mean, I was just imagining my mind. They're dignified. They're in their robes. They're all prepared. They're ready. All their pretense, all their pride, all their arrogance, all their esoteric speech. And Luke says, a random no-name person showed up and says, guys, um, hey, uh, sorry, excuse me. Um, I know you guys are wondering what happened. Um, those guys you imprisoned and you were going to stop their mouth so they couldn't preach the gospel anymore, the ones that you put your guards in front of the door and it's locked and you put them there and you have... um, You told them not to preach anymore and you thought you'd stop them. They're still over at the temple preaching. (laughs) And they're real busy doing it and nothing slowed them down. (laughs) A random someone rebukes all the dignitaries of the religious elite of the day. I love it. That's so great. I love the irony that Luke's putting in here. You imagine the scene. They're thinking, here we are, thinking we're going to stand in authority and judge them, and they're waxing eloquent over at the temple. You know what it makes me think of? Psalm 2. Just turn there really quick. This whole scene makes me think of Psalm 2. I cannot leave without looking at Psalm 2, because this is the irony that Luke's bringing out. Look at Psalm 2. This is so encouraging. And beloved, while God sometimes will keep people in prison long periods of time so they can preach the gospel in prison, the point is that the gospel never starts marching along. That's Luke's point here. No matter what men are trying to do to deliberate and stop it, it just keeps on being put forth. Notice Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar, verse 1, and the people devising vain things? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Stop there. This is that very scene. Let us who think we're in authority on this earth say to the king of the universe, We're going to shut your mouth. We're going to stop the anointed. David here, an anointed one. We will stop him. We will shut him up. And Psalm 2 is saying, they imagine they're in authority. They imagine they can stop the kingdom being built by the king. And here's what verse 4 says. He who sits in heaven laughs. (laughs) The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion and my holy mountain. 
Look at verse 4 and 5 again. When men are trying to deliberate and stop the progress of the gospel, God's posture is he laughs and then he scoffs and then he rebukes. Nothing can stop his work. Isn't that encouraging? No matter what friendship you have, no matter what relationship you have, no matter how how hostile your family is, how entrenched they are in sin and rebellion, no matter how much a liberal maybe gets in office and tells us we can't talk about Christ, no matter how many Christians are killed and executed, no matter how many wars are trying, trying to stop the progress of the gospel, God sits in heaven when those men deliberate and try and say they can stop the kingdom, and He laughs. Man. Back to Acts 5. Talk about a failed attempt here to stop the progress of the gospel. Back to Acts 5. Notice Acts 5.26. Then the captain, with his entire police force, I'm sure here, went along with the officers. Now you got the captain, and they proceeded to bring them back. But notice what it says in verse five, chapter 5, verse 26. But without violence. Remember how I said that whole mob rule thing? They're getting an influence. These guys do not want to get themselves killed. Notice. For they were afraid of the people that they themselves might be stoned. God's saving people. They're getting influence. A lot of those people will turn on them. But at this point in the church's early history, these religious leaders were scared of what God was doing in transforming people. Not saying that the believers would have stoned them, but just the sheer fact that that many people were listening. If they drug them out, they were concerned for their life and their reputation for fear of the people. They love the approval of man. Now, notice 27. When they had brought them back, they stood them there before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in the name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Filled there, uh, pleroo, to literally fill up every corner of Jerusalem. He's saying to them, There is not a pocket in Jerusalem that your message has not gone. Don't you love that? The gospel just keeps going, regardless of opposition. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Let's stop there. That's failed attempt one. (laughs) Mere imprisonment could not stop the progress of the gospel. Men tried to stop it and they failed. Failed attempt one, right there, laid before you. A failed attempt of men trying to stop them by putting them in prison and they could not. Let's go to failed attempt two. That's failed attempt one. Failed attempt two. Not only is imprisoning God's preachers failed to stop their preaching. Here's a sweet one. Failed attempt two. Hurling threats failed to silence men of conviction. Hurling threats failed to silence men of conviction. You know, we're going to see here in a moment, beloved, if we get to it this morning, if not next week, maybe some of the most convicting language for us today that we've ever heard. And that is, they're going to try and stop them And they know the next words they're going to speak could cost them their life and they could be executed immediately. And then we're going to see them get beat within an inch of their life. And then they are going to leave the temple, leave leave this whole scene here, leave the, the gathering, marveling that God would consider them worthy, that He would give such a sinner the privilege to be beaten within an inch of their life for Him. And we've got a perspective problem some of the time, don't we? Someone says a little something to us and offends us. How dare you treat me that way? I'm a Christian. I have rights. 
Really? Like more rights than Jesus? Who they killed and they executed? They marveled that they could even suffer for his name. They thought that's above my pay grade to even be able to take whippings unto death for Jesus. I don't deserve that. We're going to see that in a moment. So notice these men, what drove them to have that kind of perspective. Hurling threats failed to silence men of conviction. This is in 26 to 32. Notice 27 again. Notice what's being said there. This is fascinating. This ought to encourage your soul. When they brought them, they stood there before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, and look at that, there's two indictments to them. We gave you strict orders. Remember we looked at this at the beginning? We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in, notice they won't even say his name, in this name. They don't even want to talk about Jesus. It's like everybody on TV today. Everyone will talk about God. Everyone will talk about, oh, I'm a Christian. I got these. You start talking about the name of Jesus Christ, you polarize things. They don't even want to talk about him. Notice, this name. You're speaking in this name, 28. And yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching. So not only are you preaching the gospel we told you not to preach. Notice, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. That second accusation is significant. You know why? Lex taliones. They would have known their Old Testament. Exodus 21-24 in the Levitical law. You take a life, your life is taken. You guys are going around there saying, telling people in Jerusalem, we're responsible for executing the Messiah. If people think that's true, they could take our life by the law of retribution. So now think about the scene. They come up, they just were out preaching. Meanwhile, they were preaching. Now they're back. They're before the people. And this next attempt here is they're going to hurl threats to try and get men of conviction to be quiet about what they believe. And they tell them, you're calling us murderers and you're preaching the message that we told you not to preach and you're proselytizing people about a dead Messiah who's now risen and on the throne and we don't believe that and you're disrupting society with your message. Both accounts, they could kill them for that. So whatever the apostles say next, you just need to understand, it's probably going to be the last words of their life in their mind. Whatever comes out of their life mouths next, that's it. This could be it. Two accounts, easily can punishable, punish them, kill them. So now if you think you're in that scene, you know that the next words I say may be my last. Man, the human heart would have been prone to, well, what do we do? We, we blunt the truth. We, we take something that's really sharp and dull it a bit. We bend something a bit. <laughs> Look at their response. Verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. I mean, you think that group of the religious elite sitting there thinking, Are you kidding me? We worship God too. Who are you saying you worship God? We obey Him too, and you're telling us that we're at odds with Him? Remember, Jesus told them in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, Go out, make disciples. Teach them everything that I've commanded them. Baptize them. Add them to the church and see them grow. And then in Acts 1.8, he reiterated, take the gospel. And now these men are saying, you can't preach the gospel. And so he's, the apostles say to them, you think you're an authority? And I'll come under your authority as long as you don't require me to disobey God. But now you've given me a message that tells me you want me to disobey God. Sorry, I serve a higher authority. In fact, look at what he says. <laughs> Here's the grounds for this statement. Verse 30. The God of... Notice the plural. Our fathers. He's talking to Jews. Hey guys, 
You said that you love Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. That's our fathers. Guess what? That same God, He's the one that made Jesus live. So He pulls them into it. And then look at this. He goes from this statement of the past, and then, the, not He, but the apostles, and they turn it, and they become evangelistic. Notice. Whom you have put to death by hanging Him on a cross. Okay, that's it. Just told them, don't tell us we're the murderers again of Jesus. Don't speak about Him anymore. And now you point back at us and say, you guys killed Him. When you look at a passage like this, it should encourage you to realize that if you're a believer and you have the Spirit and you're walking with Christ, no matter what comes against you, God will sustain you if you stand to speak with the utmost courage and utmost conviction because empty threats from men cannot stop you if you have this perspective. You say, what perspective, Pastor? Notice verse 31. Not only is he becoming evangelistic and just saying, you know what, forget, let's not cut the fat. You men, you're responsible for his execution. 31. He is the one whom God exalted and to His right hand as the Prince and Savior. Those are titles for absolute authority and suffering servant. He is both sovereign king and suffering servant. And then look at what the apostles say again. To grant repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Now, don't you love that? They want to wrangle about with all these other accusations. And the apostles say, the issue is you're lost. You're dead in your sin. We've been over preaching the message of life and now we're back here and we're going to give it to you. You have an opportunity to repent and no sin's forgiven. And you're sitting here accusing us. And you know what's not mentioned here? Why didn't they talk about the empty cell? Why didn't they bring up the empty cell? Why? Because it would have been indicting because they had no explanation for how they were brought out. So Peter, Peter and the apostles just say, listen, we're going to cut the fat. This is good for us in evangelism. Don't wrangle about with words. Just get to the truth of the gospel. That's what saves. He went right to it. Look at it in 31 again. He can grant you repentance and give you the forgiveness of your sins. And look at 32. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given. And then notice what believers are called here. Those who obey Him. Don't you love that? Believers are those who the Spirit of God, notice, the Holy Spirit has invaded their life and now they obey. What does that mean? It means they obey in everything Christ says and they obey Christ over men in this moment. He's saying to them, you want me to obey you, but what shows you I'm a Christian is I obey God over you. But it's even more profound than that. Because notice that he brings up the Trinity. God of our fathers... Jesus the Prince and Savior and the Holy Spirit. Think about what he's saying. You have this 40 or 50 guys in this little court deliberating over me, telling me to not preach, telling me to not share the good news of Jesus Christ. The Trinity is calling me to proclaim the message of the Gospel. So when I take a little bit of an inventory, guys, and the Trinity is telling me to speak on behalf of Christ, and you're telling me to be quiet, I bow to that authority far over yours. That's who I yield to. You know why this is important, that it says those who obey? Because Matthew 13, 21, Jesus says, the difference between a false convert and a true convert is when there's a cost for the word, they don't compromise. Listen to Matthew 13, 21. There's the four soils. One of the soils isn't genuine. Why? Because when persecution and affliction comes, listen, because 
of the word, they fall away. The reason they say they obey is they, this was the sign they were genuine. No matter the cost, they stood. Now, you think about it. Right then, the message is done. Guys, that's it. Their life's over. That's it. They're done. They think this is it. The 12 apostles, they're going to die. Hurling threats failed to silence men of conviction. That's the second failure. You know what that makes me think of? Have you guys... I don't know how much of you have read in, in church history about Martin Luther. But one of my favorite scenes in church history, in fact, if you go into my office on the wall, I've got a quote on my wall of a paragraph from the Diet of Worms when Martin Luther was there in January 25th, 1521. And if you remember what happened in that scene, at that time in church history in the 1500s, basically, Roman Catholics are basically Pharisees. So they align themselves with the government and try and influence them. And at the same time, you have the Roman Catholics lined up with the emperor, King Henry the... I think it was uh, Emperor Charles V was there. And Martin Luther is being accused of basically turning the world upside down because of Protestant theology, right? So they call Martin Luther in, and they're going to decide whether they're going to let him live. And the scene is like you have the emperor there, then you have the Roman Catholic saying, kill him, kill him, and the emperor is going to make a decision to deliberate and decide if he lives or not. And, and they lay all Martin Luther's works before him, and they tell him, are these yours? And Martin Luther sits there for a while and then he says, can I have a day to think about it? <laughs> I want to study them, look at them, and make sure that everything I say is consistent with the Word of God. So he takes 24 hours. Some of his friends try and get him to compromise that night, get him to capitulate. Comes back the next day. And if I, I've been there to Worms. Bethany and I went with a Reformation tour, Mark and Wendy and others. They, literally, the scene is described with people who are just hovering in everywhere they could to see this great Martin Luther, this German monk, who had poked Roman Catholicism in the eye and now is standing before the emperor. And he knows whatever he says next is probably going to be the end of his life. And so Martin Luther comes back the next day. Crowds gather and he says this. Since your most serene majesty and your high mightiness require of me a simple, clear, and direct answer. And the question was, are these your works or not? Because there's heresy in these works that go against the Roman Catholic Church. Are they yours or are they not? So that's the clear answer. You want a direct answer, I will give one. And it is this. And this is what I have on my wall to remind me of this type of courage. I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to this council because it is clear as noonday that they have fallen into error and are even having glaring inconsistencies with themselves. And then here's the quote I have up. Unless I am convicted, he said, or convinced of the error by the testimony of the Scripture or by manifest reasoning, I stand convinced by the Scriptures to which I have appealed. And since my conscience is captive to the Word of God, I cannot and will not recant, for to act against one's conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. <laughs> we must obey God rather than men. Now, he got away. His friends captured him to take him up because he still needed to write the German version of the Bible. But they tried to kill him. But God thwarted them. They weren't able to stop him. He gets the Bible written in German, spreads to all the people. Gospel can go forth through Germany. My point is this, beloved. True gospel ministry cannot be stopped. It's a failed attempt. Hurling threats fail to silence men of conviction. I love that. Notice the response now in Acts 5. 
when the apostles are done. Notice what it says after this failed attempt. They are outraged. Look at verse 33. But when they heard this, notice this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. Cut to the quick, literally, it it means this, sawn in two. Literally, their heart was so provoked with anger when they heard this level of courage that they wanted them dead. It's actually, this verb's only used twice. Here and in Acts 7.54, and it means this, describing that, that dizzy infuriation that arises in the heart when you want to murder someone. That's what they're feeling at this moment. The word is at, the, at their heart level, they want to kill him. Stephen, in Acts 7.54, they say they were cut to the quick and they were gnashing their teeth and they actually killed Stephen. So, think about this, beloved. Even with that level of threats on the line, Luke wants all believers to be able to see you imprison the gospel, you don't stop it. You try and threaten men that are godly, you don't stop the gospel. And we might as well just finish it out and I'll just make some comments about it because the next two are just so great. Two more that just unfold here that are really great. We'll just finish them out in our last couple minutes. We'll, we'll finish the narrative. Two more failed attempts. So they're about to be murdered. They're about to be killed. And how does God intervene? Failed attempt three is an unlikely advocate. An unlikely advocate in a Pharisee. So the twelve, if you're taking notes, the twelve, the twelve's execution is stopped by an unlikely advocate. Look at 33. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. But, another but, don't you love Luke's grammar? Come on, you're with me on this. But, a Pharisee named Gamaliel. Do you know who Gamaliel was? Why is he famous? He was the Apostle Paul's mentor. And in fact, if you read church history and you start to study a bit about him, you find out that this particular Pharisee was the Pharisee of Pharisees, the elite Pharisee that even trained the great Apostle Paul. And now you have Luke saying, they can't stop the gospel in prison. They can't stop these men by hurling threats at them. They're still going to speak even if they're executed. And now God wants to intervene and have an unlikely, unbelieving Pharisee whose conscience seems to be tender stop them. Notice verse 34. A teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. Can you imagine (laughs) these guys? The twelve disciples? That's it. We're dead. We spoke. Okay guys, lock hands. They're going to take us. They're going to kill us. That's it. And then this unexpected advocate, Gamaliel, stands up and says, dismiss them. I want to say some things to my fellow you know, dignitaries here. And notice what he says. Men of Israel. So this is a formal speech. Take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, and then he gives two historical events. Both historical events are reliable, and you can read about them. The second one in particular, the first one, we don't know as much about it, but they're two historical events. The purpose of these historical events is to show that there were two men already that had claimed to be the Messiah, right? They're waiting for the Messiah. Two men had claimed to be the Messiah, And both of them were killed and their movement stopped. So he's going to say, these men claim they're following the Messiah. There's been this time, this has happened two other times, but it fizzled out. So notice what he says. Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with them. 36, for some time ago, Thudius rose up claiming to be somebody, a Messiah, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him, but he was killed and all who followed him dispersed and came to nothing. So now you've got a dead so-called savior, 
and everyone disperses. 37. After this man, Judas of Galilee, probably around you know, f uh, the fourth cent, you know, 4 AD, I mean, uh, yeah, 4 BC, 4 AD, yeah. Uh, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all who were followed him were scattered. So he gives these two scenarios and said there was two failed events of so-called Messiah and their believers scattered. So, verse 38. In the present case, I will say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. Look at this. Or else you may find yourself fighting against God. Think about that. God introduces a Pharisee who's a keeper of the law to stop their executions. Notice. And we'll just finish it next time. I'll just show you what happens. They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them, ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went on their way, the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple, <laughs> from house to house, look at this, they just kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus Christ. We're going to stop there, because I want to revisit that next week. And I want to revisit particularly the fourth failed attempt. So the third failed attempt was this unexpected advocate who stopped them. And the fourth failed attempt, beloved, will be that physical persecution and flogging. In fact, we'll see they get beaten within an inch of their life. Doesn't stop them from their preaching. So, let's sum all that up. How can we be encouraged today? No matter what, the point of this narrative is leave with this. God is building His church. His gospel is going forth. No matter what hostility you face, no matter how difficult our country gets, God will keep marching on His gospel to build His church until His kingdom comes. And we don't have to fret and worry. And this narrative reminds us of all the ways God will work, even using an angel to break people out of prison, men of conviction, and then a pagan speaking up, an unsaved Jew speaking up, to be a defense for the 12 apostles. And then next time we'll see that even beatings don't stop the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we, we are so grateful for narratives like this. We are grateful for inspired church history that reminds us that regardless of the hostility that comes against your gospel, regardless of how much evil looks like it's prevailing, this narrative reminds us that nothing will ultimately stop your plan and your purposes. And when men try and do that, they are fighting against you. And when we stand with you, we're fighting for you and with you. Lord, if there's any here today that hear this and they don't think they'd stand, they don't know if they're secure, they wonder if they were in that place that they would say to the officials, we stand with God rather than men. I, I pray they'd even consider their soul. Because true followers of Christ, while men do sometimes compromise for short seasons, as a conviction and a way of their life, they are ready to give their life for Christ. And that, which, that confirms they are yours. So Lord, we want everyone in here to be the type of people that would stand at this level where persecution would come. And we happen to live in an insulated culture, Lord. You've been kind to us. But a day may come when this will not happen. And so we're grateful for this inspired account, to see the courage of these men, to see the ways you work. And may we never doubt that you're laughing in heaven, 
mocking kings and authorities when they think they're going to slow down your kingdom. It will not stop. Every tribe, tongue, and nation will be in the kingdom. So we're so grateful for that. In your name we pray. Amen. You guys are dismissed.